If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Hey listeners, you know I love a good story, and this one is truly unmissable. It's set in West Virginia in the 70s and 80s and follows the disappearance of a true radical hippie, Marsha Mud Ferber. She's a bar owner, drug dealer, leader in the community, and mother of two. And one day, she just vanished without a trace. The case has been open for nearly 35 years, and on the new podcast, I Was Never There, the investigation really begins. Hosted by Marsha's close friends, the show is beautifully reported and takes you on a journey far beyond Marsha into the unique time and place of counterculture West Virginia. There's marijuana, free love, family drama, and the Red Hot Chili Peppers. You'll be obsessed. Check out I Was Never There wherever you get your podcasts. Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. When we tie you to the theft of something and that shows deception being part of your character, you forfeit the right to be believed. You forfeit to be treated as an honest person. And that's the way it is. Sergeant Reagan of the Spokane Police Department was quoted as saying during the investigation surrounding today's case, perhaps your first response was, screw this guy. People deserve second chances. But maybe the biggest and perhaps hardest lesson of the pandemic has been to see the true colors of those you thought you knew. While investigators should always process things through the lens of evidence and facts, at what point do we let someone's history dictate their future, and when should we let bygones be bygones? This is the story of the life and murder of Kenneth Cross of Spokane, Washington, and all of the red flags and herrings along the way. In July of 2001, 71-year-old Gladys Cross passed away after a two-year battle with cancer. Hap, as she was called as a play on the glad of her first name, was known for many things. First and foremost, as a prankster. She was famous for not only her creative pranks, but for luring the playful side out of others. But players beware. Hap wouldn't hesitate to get prank revenge if you should be so bold as to pull a prank on her. Hap was not just a mother to her biological son Douglas, but to many children through the years. Between family, friends, and those needing shelter, Hap and her husband Ken hosted about 15 children on and off throughout the years. Ken was involved as a parent, taking the reins as a stepfather to Douglas when he and Hap were wed in 1959. Born in Upham, North Dakota, Hap moved to Spokane, Washington in 1956, eventually meeting and marrying Ken. 
The couple loved each other greatly, sharing hobbies and involving themselves in the community. Besides both participating in bowling leagues, they loved helping their neighbors. Hap took on the duties of being an auctioneer for a PTA fundraiser. Ken donated in Hap's name after her passing to help local charities with holiday gifts. The couple was well-known in the Spokane area, making sporadic appearances in the newspaper. Hap for the time she won a whopping $200 on a local lottery ticket. Ken for his beloved truck, the White Knight. Earning himself an entire article spotlighting his baby, Ken shared the story of how in 1956 he purchased what was a red 1955 Chevy pickup for the low price of $700 or $7,400 today. It had little mileage on it from the start, and with his love and care, he continued to drive it the remainder of his life. When the red started to fade, Ken painted it white. Hap and Ken would laugh off the attention the white knight brought them, hearing strangers' fond memories of working with their grandfather in the garage or necking with their girl at the drive-in became commonplace. The truck was helpful back when Ken worked at the Lolo Pass at the border between Idaho and Montana, be it the weight, speed, or the trust Ken and the White Knight had between one another, he could always motate his truck the 170 miles back to Spokane faster than any of his co-workers. As the truck's odometer grew, Ken proudly maintained it, making sure everyone knew it was not a restoration, just a well-loved truck that had come in handy when it was time to help friends move. Even before Hap's death in 2001, her son Douglas Livingston and her husband Ken had struggled with their hot and cold relationship. Ken was willing to do what it took to help his stepson, offering support in the form of jobs, housing, and money. But Doug's history as a Vietnam veteran suffering from PTSD with a criminal history strained the relationship. Doug was often too focused on his love of guns, growing pot, and his hatred of cops and authority to hold any kind of job more strenuous than part-time. In 1978, Douglas was convicted of possession of a controlled substance. When arrested, he had grown 63 pounds of weed. Along with two years of probation, the fear the judges and police had that Doug wouldn't realize how serious his transgressions were earned him 90 days in jail. This arrest did make Doug feel serious, serious about changing the laws surrounding marijuana use. His defiance continued, later earning five days in the slammer for driving his motorcycle without a helmet, license, registration, and obstructing an officer. While there was love between the stepfather and son, their distance only grew after Hap died. But Ken couldn't be focused on only that. He had reconnected with an old friend, and now that they were both widowed, their friendship was blossoming into a romance. Kenneth Cook was born in 1944, number three of eight children, and never struggled to stand out from the crowd in his Montana home. Even from a young age, Ken knew who he was, a quality that allowed him to be confident but not cocky, earning him plenty of attention from the ladies. One of those ladies had been 82-year-old Anna Turnwall. The traits that had originally drawn Anna to Ken were still there when they reunited years later. Their time together was happy and simple. Ken remained busy with projects, working on other cars besides the night. Anna loved to garden, a hobby they would share their time doing together. Thriving through their twilight years, the couple had a simple life. Remaining in their own individual homes, every day one would call the other to say their good mornings. They would then make their plan for the day, almost always including an afternoon visit from Ken to Anna's place. They would work on the garden, talk, and enjoy their evening. Then Ken would head home. Dating for a few years, it wouldn't take much disturbance of their schedule to cause alarm. 
and on September 20, 2008, those alarms went off. On that morning, Anna received her morning greeting from Ken around 8 a.m. They made plans to meet up in the early afternoon, just like always. He handled his personal business in the morning before calling her back around 1 p.m. to say he should be at her home around 3. As Anna went about her day, she grew concerned when Ken hadn't shown up by 3, then 4. Never one to be late or at the very least not call if something was wrong, Anna grew worried. She called Ken but got no answer. She continued calling him before reaching out to his niece. Letting her know she was worried about Ken's well-being, Anna made a plan to meet the niece at Ken's house. When the niece arrived, Anna was already there. By now, it was about 7.30 p.m., and Anna had recruited a neighbor of Ken's to help her find a way into the house. Getting inside the house, they began searching for Ken, calling out, hoping he hadn't experienced some sort of medical emergency and had been left alone without any help. The younger neighbor conducted the physical search, saving 82-year-old Anna the trouble. But as soon as they looked around, they knew they weren't dealing with a medical situation. The house had been ransacked. Drawers were pulled open, items strewn about. The back door had been broken open, a long object creating a horizontal crack. Then in the bedroom, it was clear a struggle had taken place. Getting into the small walk-in closet, the neighbor discovered the body of 80-year-old Ken Cross. The closet was covered with blood, his body covered with clothes. Being an off-duty paramedic, the neighbor pulled Ken out of the closet and attempted to resuscitate him, but to no avail. Ken was dead at the scene. Ken's niece and Anna were informed of the horrible news, then the police. His death left everyone who knew him wondering who could have done such a thing to the man who was known for being so kind. Once detectives arrived, they found the forced entry at the back door and even more disturbances in the home. The basement had a desk that had literally been torn apart. An attempt to break into a metal box had been made. The floor was covered with papers that had been carelessly thrown out of the drawers. The mess left detectives wondering, was someone looking for something specific or had someone staged the murder to make it appear it had just been a robbery gone wrong? Whatever had happened, Ken's family knew he had put up a fight. He was always one to handle confrontation, not that he was aggressive, just brave and protective. Speaking of his family, they then arrived at his home, finding Anna in the kitchen. She was hysterical. Before Ken's sister could make her way to the bedroom, imprinting the nightmarish imagery of her brother's body in her mind, the neighbor stopped her. I was kind of surprised to hear that the family was even in the house. I guess we don't have this situation happen very often, but my first thought was definitely, oh no, get everyone out of the house before they contaminate the place or mess up evidence. But it's also hard to imagine what you would do if you found a loved one dead in their home. Especially one of that age. Right, because you would expect it to be some something medical. Yeah. So you'd be extra shocked, I think, to see anything violent. Investigators arrived and cleared the family out before starting to process the scene. It was clear more had happened to Ken than being shot. His face and head were beaten with a blunt object and badly. In the closet was the twenty-two caliber bullet believed to have been used for the murder. Below where Ken's body had been, the closet floor had a pool of blood. Among some of the more bizarre evidence was Ken's glasses. He had been beaten on the head and face. He had been shot in the head, once on the left side, once on the right. Yet next to his body, atop a piece of luggage stored in the closet, were Ken's glasses, nicely folded, spattered with blood. Whomever had killed him had been kind enough to take the time to gently protect his glasses. 
This left investigators wondering if the perpetrator could have been someone Ken knew. Another clue that had detectives thinking this could have been done by someone familiar to Ken was how the homicide appeared to be overkill. The beating, the two shots to the head, the ransacking of the house, a ransacking that they couldn't help but think looked overdone, possibly even staged. To be clear, it wasn't the entire house that had been gone through. Police found the kitchen was in good condition, hadn't really been touched. The basement had received the worst of it, but throughout the house they found random drawers left open, items in cabinets rummaged, their contents left askew. When it was found that Ken's wallet was the only real thing of value that had been taken, along with some random items like binoculars and a watch, it was clear to detectives there hadn't been an actual robbery attempted. Taking stock of Ken's other belongings, police learned he had owned two guns, one of which was an old-fashioned 22 caliber pistol, and that gun was missing. As far as the other weapon, whatever caused the blunt force trauma, they were unable to find anything matching the size of the injuries. After clearing the crime scene, detectives moved on to interviewing the family. There were some definite red flags that were raised. When asked who would want to harm Ken, it wasn't so much that his family thought he was dangerous or evil, but Douglas's name was brought up, prompting some of Ken's family to tell him he needed to get a will in place in case anything happened to him. Ken agreed, be it because of Douglas or that he was getting older, and made an appointment with a lawyer. He was set to meet with them on Monday morning. Ken was killed Saturday. Obviously, this had investigators very interested in having a conversation with Douglas. They went to his house, but he was gone. Well, that's because he had learned of his stepfather's death and had gone to the house. Now at the scene, detectives there were able to question him. One later claiming they had heard him say, before anyone else, that he heard that the back door had been broken into. It wasn't his words that had grabbed their attention, rather the dark, blood-like spots on his pants. When detectives asked him straight out, could that be blood? He casually replied that it could possibly be. Intrigued, the questions continued. As to how or why Douglas would have blood on his pants, he didn't have an answer. They requested to take his clothes as evidence, and he agreed to give them his pants. Checking out his car, police were surprised to find a hazmat bodysuit in his trunk. Doug claimed it was for his sporadic paint jobs. The cops weren't buying it. Stranger still, in the car, they found a phone book. See, children, before the internet was in our hands, we had actual multi-inch thick books dropped on our doorsteps. In them, you would find the names, addresses, and phone numbers of all of your favorite local businesses, restaurants, and friends. You can also, as Mike did, use them for shooting purposes. The officer's eyebrows were raised when it was found the phone book had a 22 caliber hole through the middle of it. Mike, being a big fan of guns, claimed to have used it for target practice. He was just really into ballistics. Mike was then taken to the police station for questioning. He refused his right for an attorney or silence. Giving his alibi for the day, he claimed to have seen Ken around noon when he dropped off some food for him. When he left, there was only Ken in the house. Oh, and his housekeeper. Teresa Nelson. When the police, who, as you may know, are allowed to lie about evidence during interrogations, meaning they had every right to tell Douglas that they had tested the spots on his pants and it was blood, not just that, that it was Ken's blood. Fun fact, Oregon and Illinois are the only two states that have laws against such deception. Well, it only applies to juveniles, which of course is a great step in the right direction, 
But we need anti-deception laws on a federal level for people of all ages to prevent false confessions and wrongful incarcerations. Because yes, in an interrogation or interview, the police can just outright lie and say they have evidence. It could be physical, witness testimony, anything to try and get you to confess. A friendly reminder to immediately ask for your lawyer if you're ever in that situation. Doug, though, was not falling for it. He knew it wasn't his dad's blood. It just wasn't possible. Unable to trick Douglas in any way and unable to get a confession, there just wasn't enough to hold him. You know, because it wasn't actually blood on his pants and there was no way they would have been able to test the DNA in just a matter of days. For Ken's family, it didn't really matter that the police couldn't arrest Mike. They had already been on edge about his behaviors. The questioning and suspicious circumstances left everyone looking at him as a possible murderer. In the last months of his life, Ken had decided to treat himself, hiring a housekeeper. It's unclear if he had been recommended Teresa Nelson from Anna or vice versa, but soon Teresa was cleaning both Ken and Anna's homes. It didn't take long for concerns to arise about Teresa and if she had been stealing. No, not that she would steal just because she was a housekeeper, but because they were older folks, a demographic that is prone to being seen as prey to predators. Out of the two, only Anna had proved Teresa was stealing. A gold and diamond ring Ken had gifted her just a month earlier had gone missing from where she kept it. When detectives learned of Ken's concerns and Anna's missing ring, they became even more interested in speaking with Teresa. After running her background, they found she had a boyfriend who was currently serving time for burglary. When the police inevitably showed up at her home to speak to her, her lack of surprise was evidence when she greeted them with a, I didn't do it. Alarmed by her immediate defense, detectives had some questions. Yes, Teresa had been at the house the day of the murder, just like Doug said. She did her job, cleaning the house, then left around noon, which is the opposite of what Doug had said, claiming he had left her alone with Ken around 1.30. Teresa had seen the pistol at one point, but only to the extent of learning that he had it. Well, that he had had it and wasn't afraid to use it. Perhaps fearful for his safety because of Doug, the day before the murder, Ken showed Teresa his gun, claiming he would use it on anyone who broke into his house. Not that, by the looks of it at least, you would expect his weapon to do any damage. His niece even called the small pistol more of an antique. As far as Anna's ring, Teresa knew nothing about its disappearance. As for the timeline, Teresa's had a wrench thrown in it when a neighbor, when questioned by police, claimed to have seen Teresa's vehicle in Ken's driveway at 3.30 that day. So perhaps Doug was the one telling the truth about who had been left alone with Ken. Between Ken's kind nature and his famous car, his funeral a few days later was packed. He was remembered by all as a loving, helpful father figure to anyone who needed it. He was a hardworking man who was a friend to all. His death was a loss felt throughout the community. The funeral passed, the investigation continued, and the autopsy results were in. Ken Cross had suffered at least 24 blows from the same hard, thin object. Given how the back door had been cracked, officials assumed the wounds came from something like a crowbar. The beating broke several of Ken's ribs. As far as the two gunshots to his head, the one that was from a further distance, perhaps the first shot, was a 22 caliber. The second was the same, 
only at close range. Police once again felt Doug had been involved, especially since the killing had been so violent, so they stopped by his house. He was happy to help the cops in any way possible, especially since he hoped it would help to clear any suspicion about his involvement. So, without a warrant, the police helped themselves to Doug's guns so they could test them. The examination of the guns showed there was no blood residue, and be it from sizing or ballistics, they were not a match. Speaking of blood, more tests were done, and it showed the blood on Doug's jeans wasn't blood at all. Just stuff. They're just dirty jeans. Okay, so the disgruntled son's weapons weren't involved, and he didn't have his stepfather's blood on him. Perhaps it was time for detectives to reevaluate their case, which they did, leaving them thinking maybe it wasn't overkill from someone that knew Ken, but they might have a dangerous killer on the loose who might strike again. While investigators looked at the possibility of an outsider, others were sticking to the killer came from inside the house theory. If Doug was probably in the clear, that would mean his alibi was pretty legitimate, which would make Teresa's questionable. Following the only evidence they had, officers decided to start a search for a needle in a haystack. They started checking local pawn shops for the supposedly stolen ring of Anna's. Unbelievably, they came upon a ring that fit the description at one of those shops. When it was confirmed they had found Anna's ring, they were able to charge Teresa with theft when they discovered it was her name on the pawn slip. When presented with the damning evidence, Teresa confessed, but only to the theft. Her reasoning for not being honest with the investigators from the beginning seemed reasonable. She didn't want that mistake to make her appear like the bad guy. She seems kind of kind of dumb. Like if you're going to steal something and pawn it, you maybe you drive, don't do it in that neighborhood. Drive to another state or something. Go to Oregon. I don't know. Yeah. Not really thinking clearly, right. just like in the moment. Yes, I don't know that she has but the skill set. But that makes me wonder if she's even capable of murdering him. That's a very good point. Yeah, she's getting away with it that long, but she also can't think enough to not do pawn the ring right there. So it's like, uh, which then one again, is it? somebody who needs immediate gratification like that could possibly mm. keep beating, you know, because they get caught in the moment. I don't know; it's hard, but I just I get the feeling the person that stole isn't always the person that committed the murder here mm. in this situation. We'll see. We'll see. You may think that sounds silly. How could detectives confuse or equate the crime of stealing a ring with a violent murder? Well, let me remind you of the quote I said at the top of the show from Sergeant Regan in regards to Teresa. When we tie you to the theft of something and that shows deception being part of your character, you forfeit the right to be believed. You forfeit to be treated as an honest person. And that's the way it is. Which I think is kind of harsh. It is. I can see where you can easily say you're capable of lying that's all it, it doesn't, doesn't mean, mean you're going to exactly always. like it doesn't mean we've you all lie lied. always everyone in the world has lied at least once right but I think it's easy when you're looking for any kind of clue and you sure. don't have anything and you go well she's lied to police and she stole from the victim so could be enough motive so sure it's understandable that if you're caught lying about a crime surrounding a murder victim yes that should be looked into but when that suspect is an older, very petite woman you could possibly categorize as weak, it does make it seem more reasonable that she was more fearful of the judgment than getting caught for something worse. This led detectives in a new direction. 
be it for money or robbery, maybe Teresa arranged for the murder. She could provide a schedule and access to the house for a larger partner who could help her literally execute her plan. September 28th, eight days after Ken's death, police received a peculiar call, which completely shifted the focus of their investigation. The man who had called in a tip was Bill Ludeen. On Bill's land, he owned a trailer, which he lived in, a mobile home, which he rented out to an elderly couple, and a large garage unit with a studio apartment, which was rented to a man who had recently been evicted. There was never anything interesting kept in his storage area. It was mostly paint cans and tools you would need to work on your house and property. But that day was different. Opening one of the large paint buckets, Bill was surprised to find an igloo cooler inside. Inside the cooler, a metal container that had been wrapped in foil. Inside the foil, strange personal objects, all of which he had called in to police. Hopeful they would have some possible answers, police went to Bill's property in Spokane and he showed them to the cooler. Among the random objects, there were very notable things like black leather gloves, a crowbar, boots with blood spatter, jewelry, a 22 caliber pistol, and a driver's license belonging to Ken Cross. That crowbar is likely what he was beat mm. with, if I had to guess. Detectives knew whoever had been renting the space was most likely their killer. Could it have been Doug? Teresa? That's when Bill gave them a name, David Brezinski. Bill and David had a rental agreement, but in early September, just a few weeks before the murder, Bill realized David was using his space as a hiding spot for stolen goods, negating their contract. On September 25th, just five days after the murder, Bill changed the garage locks. Learning about David, police ran a background check. David Brzezinski had been arrested as a prolific burglar. In 1997, David was arrested during a neighborhood watch dragnet, or dragnut if you're a hardcore Murder in the Rain fan. <laughs> when the West Valley area of Spokane realized they had a burglar in their midst, 22 community members volunteered their time to canvas the neighborhoods that were getting hit. Within five minutes of their outing, David, who matched the description of the culprit, was spotted on a bike and a call was made to police. As was his style, he was caught with small items from a home he had ransacked, including jewelry and a gun. With his description and M.O., detectives figured he was responsible for at least 30 burglaries in the area. Holy cow. That's a lot. I grew up seeing those neighborhood watch signs, and I never knew what it was, and I never felt safer. Because I'm like, I feel like that's kind of like having an ADT sticker, even if you yeah. don't have a system. <laughs> Just the empty threat. Yeah, I never understood what it really was. And so I love seeing that people actually got together, and I think they had like walkie-talkies or something. And they're like, beep, boop, going around the neighborhood, and bam, caught him right away. It's like, that's what I'm talking that's about. That's great. David was convicted and sent to prison for seven years, with prosecutors not bothering to connect him to the other burglaries he was suspected of. In July of 2014, David was released. In October of 2014, yes, three months after seven years in the pokey, he was caught rummaging around a man's basement. After running out of the house upon the owner's return, David got in his truck. He didn't get far, though, ditching the truck after the cops caught up to him and making a run for it but he was picked up near some apartments at Pine Roads off the I-90. In his pockets, items from the man's house, including jewelry. 
After being arrested and pleading guilty, David shared his tactics. He would simply walk up to the targeted house, knock on the door, and if no one answered, he would just kick it in. Helping himself to anything around the house that was of value and would fit in his pockets, he would tear the place apart before seeing himself out. Investigators couldn't help but notice the similarities in David's style and the scene at Ken's home, the exception, of course, being that Ken was in the house. It was also hard to believe this man, who clearly didn't have moral concerns regarding breaking in and stealing, would suddenly escalate things to murder. There had to be another explanation, which took police back to Teresa. One of the more recent burglaries happened just a few houses down from Ken's, so David knew the area. Perhaps he and Teresa's thieving boyfriend knew each other from local circles. That had to have been how Teresa and David had been in contact with each other, creating a plan for her to let him know when he should come to Ken's and rob him. While police put the puzzle of the Teresa-David connection together, the labs were running tests on the items that had been found in the cooler. David's DNA was found on the inside of one of the black gloves. Ken's DNA was found on what turned out to be his own gun and on the outside of said glove. As far as the boots, they were found to have Ken's blood on them. Back to questioning Teresa, police wanted to know if and how she knew David. But first, they would need to catch up with her, which they did as she got off a Greyhound bus in Seattle on the 28th. When they asked her if she even knew David, her response was, he did it, he did it. As far as how they met, well, it wasn't through her boyfriend. It was on a phone love line. You know, with those commercials? Hi, I'm single. I'm bored. I'm sexy. Going on about their relationship, Teresa claimed that she and David had only hung out three times before the murder. She knew he was a recently released felon, but hadn't gotten around to asking him about his criminal past just yet. And that, yes, she had told David about Ken's house. To what extent, I'm not sure. Could she have been meaning she was talking to him about her job, or was she providing information for his next hit? When shown a montage of photos, which included one of David, police were surprised when Teresa showed no reaction or response to his picture. She just continued to talk about David while not being able to point him out. Contradicting what she had told investigators when speaking with local reporters, Teresa denied knowing David and continued to profess her innocence in regards to having anything to do with Ken's murder. After all of the conversations, the only thing police knew for sure was that Teresa couldn't be trusted. She admitted that she, quote, does lie a lot and doesn't know how to stop. With the ring theft, the only concrete crime they could connect her to, Teresa was charged with first-degree theft and trafficking stolen property. With the DNA on Ken's property matching David, a warrant was issued for his arrest. Police found him outside a convenience store, chowing down on a hot dog. Without incident, David was arrested and was jailed, held on a million dollars bail. I share the hot dog part because I watched the story of this on ID's Buried in the House, and they had some really fantastic, very dramatic reenactments involving the actors and the hot dog. I mean, if I were going to get arrested, I'm guessing I'd be eating a hot dog as well. Odds are I'll be eating a hot dog. <laughs> Pick me up at the local Costco and Tiger. Eating a, a foot long. So do you think maybe she never met him in person and this all happened on their love line? I think if I were an investigator talking with her, I would get very frustrated. Yeah. I, Like I said, uh, 
I think there's something that is causing her cognitive difficulty and maybe she doesn't even know what the truth is. I don't know, but it would be very frustrating to be like, wait, how can you tell me you met this guy three times and that you had a phone relationship? But maybe it was meeting on the phone. Oh, like maybe she just like had conversations over the phone. Oh. Because you're more inclined to share information That's like true. that over the phone. That's true. And I do appreciate that she admits, like, I'm a pathological liar. I don't know how to stop. It's just <laughs> what I do. Yet she can get three dates. <laughs> <laughs> Try as they might, investigators weren't able to connect Teresa and David. No phone records, no conversations, no secret plans to have him break in. Nothing. In a bit of good news, Anna was given back her ring. In April of 2010, David was in court facing charges of first-degree murder with aggravated circumstances, first-degree burglary, and theft of a firearm. Those special circumstances were the fact that he had a firearm which elevated the burglary into murder. It was noted that David's appearance in court was that of a cold and emotionless person. As Ken's family suffered through the trial process, including seeing graphic photos, videos, and hearing accounts of how brutally their loved one had been beaten, David appeared completely uncaring. The prosecution's case was a strong one. The defense didn't have much to stand on against the DNA, stolen items, and history of burglaries. As for the questions surrounding how David, Teresa, and Ken all knew each other, it was believed that either David and Teresa did know each other, and she mentioned that an old man lived where she worked, or he was just casing the neighborhood and found he was living there alone, and he just chose the house. That's not to say the defense didn't try to put up a case. The public defender tried to say police only tested evidence that fit the narrative they felt had happened. They also mentioned the relationship between Ken and Doug and the fact that Doug had some scratches on his arms and face when he was questioned. But Ken's fingernail scrapings weren't tested or perhaps not even taken, which could have provided DNA if they had been physical. That's very frustrating. Like when someone is murdered, yeah. And it is a homicide or suspicious circumstances, yes. whatever. Their body should be processed as if it was a homicide that they fought back. In. And it should be the same thing for each person so you don't miss that stuff. Right. Because who are you to decide like, oh, we don't I'm need to I'm sure there that. is a process and they just neglected to follow it. Yeah. No. <laughs> On the day of the murder, David must have been watching the house. The neighbor who claimed to have seen Teresa's car in the driveway later in the day must have been mistaken because a bit after Doug and Teresa left, Ken went to the grocery store. That was when David made his way inside by busting in the back door. Tearing the place apart, he was once again collecting small but possibly valuable items in his pockets as he went. Unexpectedly, Ken returned home around 2. He was only going to drop off his purchases then head to Anna's for the evening as planned. Instead, he encountered David. The two fought, and that's when it's believed Ken went to get his gun, but David was able to overpower him. Beating Ken down, David was able to move Ken into the closet where he shot him twice. The fact that they were strangers made David's action of protecting Ken's glasses even stranger. It took eight women and four men on the jury only three hours, which included a lunch break, to find David guilty. The charges were added to his record, making for a third strike, which, you know, would have already happened if he had been charged with those other burglaries, keeping Ken and who knows who else safe. And he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. 
David's lawyers filed appeals, mostly based on instructions given to the jury and other desperate straws they could grab, but it was no good. I couldn't find if the charges were dropped or if prosecution never got around to it, but because of additional items found in David's storage unit, there were additional charges coming his way, including 11 counts of theft, 5 counts of unlawful possession, unlawful possession of a firearm, and 1 count of trafficking stolen property. No one would have to worry about those charges, though. On August 31, 2013, David Brzezinski took his own life by cutting his wrists while in the Washington State Penitentiary in Walla Walla. Anna Marie Turnwall, Ken's partner, passed away on December 23rd of last year at the age of 95. You know, I wonder how hard they tried to get that guy to roll over. Like, why was he so mum on everything? He Which guy? The, the guy, the culprit. He could have thrown the girl under the bus. I don't think there was any connection. I think that's bonkers. I think she flat out just made lied. it up. I think it it's maybe a an attention seeking mechanism. Like why get involved though? I can Boy. think of at least one person in my life who, if the police were talking to them, they would probably make something up. That's for the nuts. attention or that something. That is nuts. Yeah, that is the last thing I would ever be. Tempted there was to nothing. Do. They had no connection whatsoever. There was never proof of them ever talking. I did. I couldn't find anything as far as them interviewing David about Teresa if she, if he had said anything. Right, like if he was saying, no, I don't know her. Yeah, but they had nothing on them. There was wow, no, that is they had wild. never talked on the phone. They had never met. They had never any and did, of it. And he didn't give any indication on why he was so violent with him? I think it was just that he stumbled upon him. He's not used to I that. I think that Ken came home and it caught both of them off guard and Ken went to go get his gun because he didn't bring the gun with him. It was Ken's gun. And, yeah. you know, and that's something that they oh, yeah. say Had about the gun not been there. Yeah. It probably wouldn't have happened. Like he that. might he might have been hit with the crowbar or something, but who knocked knows? out. Yeah, that's terrible. That's that whole thing about like owning a gun can escalate violence. You know, yeah, your like your likelihood of dying by gun violence goes up. Yeah. Massively. So I think he ran into his room and be it in the closet or, you know, somewhere in his bedroom. He had his gun. And the day before he had said, well, that's according to her. So. Who knows if he actually said that and showed the gun, but um, according to her, the day before, he was like, I'll confront somebody yeah, if I with, have to. with her history of lying, it seems unlikely that, and also that's weird behavior from um, from someone. Yeah, that would be like maybe in some time during the course of cleaning, she came across the gun, maybe. you know, and then maybe he was like, oh, I just have that for protection in case someone breaks in yeah, or something. Yeah, that seems more likely. But I think it's just a weird, perfect storm of this bad relationship with Doug, his son, and him having his own behaviors that could be seen as erratic or, you know, unconventional and her behaviors. And they were just off on their timeline and then everyone was gone. And this guy happened to show up and knock on the door. If they had pursued those 30 burglaries, he would have had his third strike and he would have been serving life. Did he wouldn't the family have been... file a civil suit or anything? No, because I don't think it's a matter of. I think, you know, it's more like that they didn't press the charges. So I don't know that it's a, I mean, it's definitely negligence on their end, but. That would be very frustrating to yeah. think about your whole life. Uh-huh. Yeah. To not hold on to that bitterness and yeah. anger. Impossible for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so before we go, real quick, listeners, we had someone a few months ago send us artwork. 
and it is so cool. We have some of it hanging up in the studio, and the one with three dancing skeletons. And there was Chloe has one in her bedroom. Yeah, and there's like the robot with the heart, and it was such good art. And we wanted to say thank you so much because you heard that we loved getting things from fans, and you sent us this beautiful package. And I set your little card to the side for recording, and it disappeared. And so we lost. Way to go, Alicia. Alicia we... Holland, who said that, not Emily. <laughs> and I will admit that I was the one that. that it was Josh. It I Josh. But, but here's the thing: we both we both went tits deep in the garbage, and we dug through everything because I was like, I just had it here. It just we just. So had whoever it. you are, DM us. Yes. Let us know. But thank you for your art. It means so much, and we're so sorry that we can't say your name. So yes, message us email us and we will give you a and we'll give out. you a proper shout out <laughs> yeah send us your your uh store if you have one so Definitely. we can share it with everyone are we recording my we pants are. rolled down oh stupid pants is it a beefer you i have definitely woken up with a big brown spider carcass Sizzler cook. Ah, that was a cockroach. Good old Mike. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds me of a funny story, Ooh. which was, you know, um, drunk in college. Classic. We got home from my uh, from the bar at my apartment, which was really close to downtown. And she I couldn't find her. I'm like, where's like she's staying the night. And I see <laughs> she had passed out in my laundry pile at the bottom of my bed <laughs> and just like blended in. <laughs> It was so funny. I laughed for like 20 oh minutes. Oh my God. That's hilarious. <laughs> I was like searching everywhere. And for she's her. just right there. And she's so <laughs> tiny. Of course, she fit in your hamper. Oh my God. That's classic. Oh, that was great. <laughs> just a little ballet flat sticking out. <laughs> you basically, they were when those pointy kitten heels oh were popular. Oh my God. Yes. <laughs> Working with their grandfather in the garage or necking with their girl at the drive thru became commonplace. Drive thru? You mean drive-in? Yep. I'm <laughs> <laughs> <Mongo> go necking. <sighs> slow it down. Just slow it down. Just enjoy it. Just slow it down. <laughs> Creep. Slow it down. No condoms. Sorry, my joke didn't make any sense. You call me a slut? Mm-hmm. Oh. I am. That's, a, that's fair. Items and cabinets rummaged. Their contents left askew. Contents. <laughs> I didn't even notice. That sounded right to me. The contents. Their skill. One of which was an old-fashioned twenty-two caliber pistol. Oh my gosh. Pistol. How big is your butthole? I don't want to be gangbang. <laughs> I just like it when it's not me being gangbang. Mm, you're going to get it. Mm-mm. Nope. Well, I'm going to be perfect today. I'm going to be so perfect. You just watch. Uh-huh. Famous words. <laughs> Famous words. I got that NyQuil course into my veins. <laughs> that sounded sexy. Oh, that's because that's how I feel right now. I just feel like I got NyQuil body, you know? The police helped themselves to Doug's gun so they could test them. Mm-mm. What? They, you lied? It is close enough for a hot dog. Keep yelling at me to read the actual words I have. On August 31st, David thir- David 13! <laughs> <laughs> Good old Am I smelling 13? toast? Uh, Jurassic Park comes out this week. Mm. I like red herrings. Yeah, me too. Me too.
cold. I do, I do too. <laughs> Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>